I'll never forget that Sabbath morning 47 years ago. Uh, we were in Edmonton, Alberta. We had been married, Dee and I, for about a year. And on that morning, that Sabbath morning, she started having some pretty severe abdominal pains. Uh, we hadn't considered that that would happen. We certainly hadn't planned for it. We were young. We were trying to do things right. Life was going well. So wasn't that a sign that God was pleased and that we would be blessed in every way? We had planned for this baby. We had prayed for conception if it was God's will. And bingo, conception. So therefore, everything is going right. So three months into our master plan for a family, over just a few hours, things turned upside down. The hurting, uh, the fear, the unsurety about what was going on, the ignorance that we had, the wondering what to do, the hospital, the calls to family and friends, the going home together, and the facing then the questions that flooded the mind. Questions, some of them about faith. Why? Why God? Why did we lose that child? Why? Did we do something wrong? What, what happened to the formula? You know, the formula about how life is supposed to work. Now, I had suffered loss before, we both had. My grandfather and grandmother had, had died. But they were old and sick. You expect that. Uh, that was, however, what we were going through as a couple was our first deep personal loss. And we were unprepared for it. It was unexpected. And it was a challenge in some ways to our faith. Not in all ways, but in some ways. Looking back on it now, we were young, we were naive, we were going through something that, you know, you know life is going to throw some curveballs at you from time to time, but we were going to learn a lot. We would get some answers. We got answers about the physical side of things, why miscarriages can happen, that the doctors could explain, but no doctor could explain and the thing that we had to sort out between ourselves and God. And those were the things spiritual. Our faith that God existed, our faith that His way is right was never threatened. But boy, you can sure have a lot of other questions that come into your mind. Questions for God, uh, maybe some questions about God, questions about ourselves, but looking back on it, so many of these questions in one way or another related to faith. Now that was a long time ago. And since that Sabbath in 1975, we have been through lots of other things. A lot of other situations in life that were challenging. And some of those were also tests to our faith. We've watched other people go through situations in life that challenged their faith as well. And we have walked with some of them trying to hold their hand through those times of life, and sometimes trying to answer their questions that they asked us about faith. 
And through these experiences, we have seen all kinds of examples and reactions. We have seen people who were just pillars that you stopped and admired and thought, wow, what a, what a, what a display of faith in their lives. And we've also watched people falter and stumble and eventually turn away from God and His way of life because their faith crumbled. I remember a situation one time with a married couple who experienced a, a tragic loss. One of them was, their faith was like cement. It was just anchored and it was strong and they were a pillar. And the other one, their faith just crumbled and they left the church, they left God, they, they, they just turned their back on, on God. There could not be a God if this kind of thing would happen. And so it's very hard sometimes to tell how people will react, but we all react. We react in one way or another when we go through situations. And I think we all know that faith is a, a deeply important subject. Paul wrote Timothy, urging him to wage a good warfare in this Christian life. Having, he said, faith and a good conscience, which some, having rejected concerning the faith, have suffered shipwreck. Well, that was a, a rather graphic way to describe it, isn't it? He said their faith was like a, like a ship that runs aground during a storm and the ship cracks up. And of course, you know, people suffer loss there. Well, why, why is that? Why does that happen? Is there anything that can be done to prevent it? And for everyone whose faith that, I don't know who Paul was referring to, but for every one of those whose faith had been shipwrecked, probably at some point earlier in their lives, they never thought that would happen or could happen. So we need to think about faith in that respect. I'm at a point now in my life, way down the road from 1975. Many years have gone by since we rode through that storm. Looking back on, on, on life in that way and things that have occurred since, I have learned that number one, it is predictable that every Christian will have their faith tested. The Bible talks about that. You, you can search faith and test in, a, in an online Bible and you will see a number of scriptures pop up. Storms in life will come. Now they don't, they're not there all the time. Life itself is not one huge storm. And storms may not even be there most of the time. But sometimes there will be times in life when storms will come. And number two, those experiences, those storms that will test our faith are actually quite predictable. They're quite predictable what they will be. The fact that these things happen leads to the core question of this sermon and the title. The question to pose to us to think about is, will your experiences shape your faith or will your faith shape your experiences? Will your experiences shape your faith or will your faith shape your experiences? In other words, these things that we go through, will the things we go through determine or shape the level of our faith? Or will the level of our faith determine how we handle those experiences? 
It's a very important question. Now we could probably answer very quickly, uh, well, both. Both of those things happen. And we would probably be correct. You can find examples in the Bible of individuals, people of God, who exhibited great faith in the face of very challenging experiences. And then at another time, had their faith waver and they faltered in the face of challenging experiences. And they, they learn, they learn from both. And we, we do learn from both. But let me ask you a question. Let's consider this. Is one better than the other? Is it better for our, our experiences to shape our faith or for our faith to shape our experiences? I believe that one is far better from the, than the other. Far better. Because now, decades after the, our, our young experiences, that I, experience I was telling you about, and many more experiences under our belt, this I believe, it's far better in life. It's far more secure in life to have a strong faith that shapes your experiences. And by that I mean having a faith that steers you through and guides you through your reactions to whatever it is you may experience. Far better to have a faith that shapes your experience. If not, if it's the other way around, if our experiences determine and shape our faith, what we will find is that faith gets pushed one way and another. Faith is not solid. Our faith will depend on what we're going through. And I have seen that happen in life where sometimes someone's faith depends on their situation. If life is going good, God is good. Faith is strong. If life goes bad though, well, where's God? What happened to God? And our faith can be weak. We can question God and doubt God. I've seen that happen. I've seen it happen where some were not suddenly shipwrecked, but their spiritual ships were leaking. They had sprung some holes. And depending on the circumstances, they struggled to keep afloat. You know, some boats aren't lost because of a shipwreck and a storm. Some are lost because they just slowly sink. And we don't want to be in either. So it's very important. Faith is a frame of mind. Faith is a way of thinking about life. And if it's strong, it can control our reactions to the experiences that we go through. Faith is also from God. That means it's a spiritual issue. It's a spiritual element in life. And when we have that faith from, that comes from God, that, mean God, that means God is controlling our thoughts. That means He's controlling our lives. And that faith is what allows God to be in control. But on the other hand, if we allow our experiences to dictate the way we're going to perceive faith and perceive God, that means we are in control. And that's never a good thing for human beings. The Bible is full of stories, and we could, we could probably tell our own, of people who faced difficult situations and their knees buckled. Their knees buckled. They reacted not by faith, but by sight. 
And when that happens, we can lose faith in God, and it's very difficult to let us allow God to control everything. But that's what faith boils down to. That's why faith is very important. Let's notice what Paul wrote to Timothy, or sorry, to the Thessalonians. We'll come to Timothy a little later. He wrote to the church at Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, some really encouraging things in this regard. But Paul was concerned, you know, he, he, was, he wanted to make sure that uh, their faith was holding. And he recognized that there could be things here that could be shaking the faith of some. So in 1 Thessalonians 3, in verse 1, he said, Therefore, when we could no longer endure it, we thought it good to be left in Athens alone and sent Timothy, our brother and minister of God, and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ, to establish you and encourage you concerning your faith, that no one should be shaken by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are appointed to this. In other words, he was saying, you know there are some afflictions being experienced now, so don't let those things shape the way you're going to have your faith toward God. Don't let those things shake you. Now, when you go back to chapter 2, there are hints about the afflictions. He said, we, we had suffered before and were spitefully treated at uh, uh, Philippi. Uh, he talks about being in much conflict. He said, you've also suffered from your countrymen. You've been persecuted. Uh, he said, Satan hindered us from coming to see you. So there, there were various afflictions they were going through. And, and when they were going through these afflictions, he said, I, I was just concerned. I wanted to send Timothy to establish you and encourage you concerning your faith. He said, these things will happen. We're appointed to these things. That's just the way life is. And it seems like Paul himself was continually facing some real challenges. In verse 4 he says, For in fact we told you before when we were with you that we would suffer tribulation just as it happened and you know. For this reason, when I could no longer endure it, I sent to know your faith. Lest by some means the tempter had tempted you, and our labor might be in vain. He said, I've worked hard for the church, and you've worked hard. Worked hard in the faith, and I don't want to see this work in your life's effort be pulled apart because of problems with faith. Verse 11, he said, Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all just as we do to you, so that he may establish your hearts. That's twice now he's used the phrase about being established. Establish your hearts, blameless in holiness before God, our God and Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. You know, that issue of the heart being established is used a number of times in the Bible, several times. And, and the word in Scripture uh, where it talks about being established, the word means to strengthen or to make firm, to sustain, to support, to make it steadfast. James 5.8 says, establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Just make, make things really solid here. Now, you know, there are many facets of the heart that need to be established, of course, you know, love, joy, peace, uh, patience, endurance, all, all kinds of things. 
But faith is one of those things that really needs to be established as well. It's one of the most critical because we know our faith will be challenged more than once in more than one way. You might recall Luke 18, the parable of the importuning widow. And it makes the promise, God will avenge his elect. We don't have to worry about God. He, he will be faithful to avenge his elect. But then Jesus said, nevertheless, when the Son of Man returns, when he, when he comes, will he really find faith on the earth? It's sort of a haunting question, isn't it? When he comes, will he really find faith on the earth? Well, I chose to talk about this topic today because this sermon is going out to the church and it is a timeless and it's a universal topic. There's no one that this question does not touch. People of all ages and at any given time in the year, every congregation around the world, someone will be experiencing things where faith will be a critical factor in how they, they deal with it and how they learn from it and grow by whatever situation they are in. I mentioned in the last sermon at the feast, as probably many did at other places, that, well, we're going into the next year and another year now before the next Feast of Tabernacles, and who knows what will come in that year. There will be some ups, there will be some downs, there will be some good times, some bad, some blessings, some trials. Those things are, are, are predictable. They are going to come. And faith will always be a critical factor as we go through those things. So I hope that today I can give you some usable, practical things to consider and apply in our lives where, where our faith is concerned. Let me list here, before I get into the main point, let me list some of the most common experiences. I said earlier that the experiences we will go through to challenge our faith are predictable. They are predictable. What are they? Some of the predictable things, and this is probably not the all-inclusive list, but there are things that we have seen over the years that can cause the heart, instead of being established, to perhaps get a little shaky under times of test of our faith. We will be challenged, number one, we will be challenged by loss. Everybody at one time or the other will be challenged by loss. Loss of life, loss of health, loss of finances, friendship, love, relationships. Everybody will be challenged by loss. We will be challenged, number two, by silence. When you're in need, and you pray, and there seems to be no answer. We sang that in the last song of the opening set of hymns. How long, eternal, hide thou away? We asked the question in our song. David asked it in Psalm 13, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? You can feel like that. God hasn't forgotten us, but in times of silence. We can feel forgotten. How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemies be exalted over me? David was going through whatever experiences it was, and he was going to God saying, where are you? 
In Psalm 143 in verse seven, he said, answer me speedily, O Lord, my, my spirit fails. So we can be challenged in our faith on, in times of silence. We will sometimes be challenged by simply the passage of time. When a tough situation just seems to never end. It can go on and on and on, and it turns into an endurance contest. That can wear a person down, and when people get worn down, their faith can be challenged. We may be challenged in times by the lure of short-term gratification when long-term gratification seems so far away. When you think, you know, I can get rewards quickly in some form, but it may mean disobedience to God. And it's hard to say, I can't see the rewards in the long term. And we have to have faith that God rewards those who trust Him and obey Him. We may be challenged by arguments against the truth. Arguments against the truth, the doctrines of God, the teachings of God, the people of God who have, I mean, we've always been under attack by the world. We understand that. Um, sometimes at some places, even physically, but more often than not, intellectually, emotionally. Paul talked about casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. And there's a lot of that in the world today. Our young people may tend to be bombarded with that. And there's, it's growing as time goes on. And it's all designed to make us question God, lose faith in God. Number six, we will sometimes be challenged to have confidence that you can believe in that which you cannot see. You can believe in that which you cannot see. And that's what faith is all about. We may be challenged, number seven, to maintain your confidence that doing the right thing is always the right thing to do. That simply doing the right thing is always the right thing to do. And to have faith that God will honor that, that He will protect us while we do that, that He will back you up. We will be challenged, number eight, this may be a catch-all, but we will be challenged when the giants come enemies that are bigger than us, that are more powerful than us. Maybe they don't just look big, but they are more than what we are. And we have to have faith that God will be there to help us. We, we could probably add more, but my point is that th these things are pretty common. They back up what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, that there is no temptation that's overtaken us but such as is common to man. These things are common. These are the common areas where, where our faith is, is challenged. Uh, not everyone will be challenged by everything or all the time, but everyone will be challenged by some of these things some of the time. They are the common experiences. Now, how can we handle them? How can we look at the threats they pose, identify the threats, and respond to them? 
Because all of those experiences like that, like we just listed, do pose certain, certain threats to us. And there are things that we can do. Let's take a look now at four fundamental threats to faith that Jesus identified. And it's interesting, Matthew is the one who points these out in a certain way in his gospel. Matthew records Jesus making this statement four times, O you of little faith, along with a description of what caused the little faith. And every time it was a, a different factor. And I think that we can, we can all relate to these things. These are statements that were even dictated. He was talking to people who at times exhibited great faith and at other times had their faith challenged. So he was talking to people like, like us, you know, people who go through things and sometimes we respond well and sometimes we learn from the things where we didn't respond so well. But we can learn. Let's go first of all to Matthew chapter 6, the first, the first issue that he brings up here. Matthew chapter 6. This is uh, familiar and as part of the, what's called the Sermon on the Mount. And beginning in, well actually the term, O you of little faith, is found in verse 30, but you have to go back to verse 25 to get the context. Beginning in Matthew 6.25 he says, Therefore I say to you, do not worry, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. And the question to consider, here's a big philosophical question that Christ puts to us, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Now he asks us to think about this. Then he says, look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? stature? So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now if God so clothes the grass of the field which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after all of these things the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Six times here he talks about worrying, especially over the physical. Now here's a question, no show of hands, but just an internal question. Are you a worrier? Are you a worrier? Now all of us worry from time to time, but some of us are really good at it. You know, we're, we're inclined to it for whatever reason. And I, I know there are people here who'd probably admit, I'm, I'm a worrywart. 
I'm a worrywart. Now, if this sermon goes out beyond the United States and England, uh, for our non-English speaking friends, you may not know what a worrywart is. That's more of, a, of an English phrase, but you probably have an equivalent in other languages that describes someone who frets, who just frets over the possibilities of trouble. Someone who is inclined to worry unnecessarily. I'm reminded of the old man that I heard about who was a worrier all his life looking back and telling someone on his deathbed, I've had a lot of troubles in my life, most of which never happened. A lot of troubles were just the things worrying about. But for whatever reason, it can become part of some people's makeup more than others. You of little faith here in verse 30, in the context of do not worry, tells us there's a connection between worry and the degree of faith that we have in our thinking. Now, I don't think that Jesus was condemning anybody. I don't think he was, had that tone. I think he was just acknowledging a weakness of the flesh that we can easily have. And he was trying to help us gain a perspective, a different perspective on how to think about God and how to think about life so that any threat to weakening faith could be countered and be made stronger. And telling us to recognize that and, and think about these things before the trials come so that worry does not grow and take over because the habit of worry, if a person has a habit of worrying, when a bad situation comes, it's going to amplify. It'll get worse in a bad situation. So he says, think about these things. Now, as you read through this whole section again, if you study it carefully, I can see how this pertains to some people who face real problems with simply not having food and clothing. And at times we've had members in the church in certain areas of the world that we've had to help, say in Africa, who've had, who faced drought and just simply didn't have enough to eat, didn't have clothes the way we have. So it can, it can pertain to that. I can also see some of this pertaining to someone just getting so caught up in societal values. Oh, I wish I was taller. I wish I had better clothes. I wish I had those clothes. Those are in style now and my clothes aren't. You know, I, it's just starting to worry about, as he said, the things that the Gentiles worry about. Values in, in their society. It, the, this section can apply to a broad array of circumstances. If we have worries over false values, oh, I don't like these jeans because the label on the rear end isn't the one I really want. Then that's maybe he says, restructure the thinking about what's really important. But maybe the person who just doesn't have any jeans, period, and needs some clothes, he says, don't, don't worry about that because there's a trust factor here with God. Very important. But other, other issues can be real issues in life. Real issues, real problems about the basics of life. You might have seen on the news this morning, the same article I did, some major economist said, 
there is a 100% chance of a bad recession starting next year. You can read that and start worrying, you know. My job is tenuous uh, already. What if, I, what if I lose my job? My retirement is not gonna hold up. I, I don't have it to, to make it through those times. There can be some very serious concerns in life. And God certainly realizes that we're living in a world that has legitimate concerns at times, problems to deal with. Concerns in life, the more concerns there are, the more they can train us to, to worry and fret because after all, some of these are real problems. They can be a real challenge. But he, God tells us, hey, you have me now in your life. You're not just living in the world of problems. You've got me. You have me. We have a relationship here. He is telling us here, have faith in me. Faith is the key to not worrying. That, that is what conquers worry. That is what gives us the peace in Christ that passes understanding. That passes all understanding. Just being able to not worry about these things. We can think differently. But we also have to recognize that as humans, sometimes we battle a lifetime of, of wrong thinking and worrying can be wrong. He doesn't say ignore these issues. He doesn't say pretend they don't exist. He doesn't say to us, you don't need to pay those bills, don't worry about it. He doesn't say responsibilities, <laughs> don't worry about those. No, we have to do our part. But he does tell us, understand, worry will not solve the problems, but worry will erode the faith. There's a connection to faith and worry. Worry makes people run to the worst case scenarios. Faith makes us run to the better case scenarios, the best case scenarios. And repeated, frequent worry becomes a habit. And if it come, becomes a habit, we can worry about things that don't even exist, never will exist. I don't want to get to the end of my life and be like that, that old guy saying, I've, I've seen a lot of troubles in my life, most of which never happened, and realize this, that was wasted time and effort. Worry focuses disproportionately on the physical and takes our eyes off of God. So how do we fight it? Philippians chapter 4. Philippians 4, this gives far, far more than we can cover in a single sermon. In fact, this could be a sermon all by itself. Philippians 4 and verse 6, Paul wrote, and Paul was somebody who had learned. This is part of life, we learn this. Paul had learned how to be content, how to tamp down these things that rise up to make us discontented and worried. And one of the things he wrote here was, be anxious for nothing. Now there's a difference between being concerned and being anxious. To stop our thinking before it gets to anxiety levels is really important. Be anxious for nothing, but, so it's like he says, here's the ideal, here's where we wanna be, but knowing human weakness, here's how to deal with it when it does come up. 
but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. Putting God in the middle of the picture. It's not always easy, but he said, this is, this is where it is. There is a spiritual chemistry. There's an interaction of prayer, supplication, and thanksgiving. All of those things together that has an effect on us spiritually. Prayer and supplication. In the Greek, supplication has also been translated as prayer. You might look at that and say, well, what was he saying? Pray and pray? No, there are two different words and supplication is stronger. It's a stronger word. To put it in the vernacular, it's like he would be saying, look, go to God in prayer and really entreat him. Really pour out your heart to him specifically about this, but also do it with thanksgiving. Those three things will have an impact on your faith. Uh, if you want to do an interesting thing, just Google sometime what gratitude does for you. Just Google what gratitude does for you. There are all kinds of articles that come up. There have been all kinds of studies that psychologists have done on this issue of gratitude. And they identify concrete positive results. They say gratitude increases happiness and a positive mood. Gratitude gives a greater satisfaction with life. Gratitude makes us less materialistic. Gratitude reduces stress and burnout. It increases our physical health. It gives us better sleep. We have less fatigue. We have said gratitude even can reduce levels of cellular inflammation. I don't know how that works, but these are people who've done studies on it and say this is one of the effects. Gratitude increases resiliency. Gratitude encourages patience, humility, and wisdom. It increases pro-social behaviors, interestingly. It strengthens relationship. Gratitude fosters hope. Gratitude enhances empathy and reduces aggression. There are even more things that you could add to this. But what the effect is, we pray, we pray earnestly, and we remember to be thankful, and these things combined start balancing out the worry that can creep in. God says that he gives us a spirit of power and love and of a sound mind. And the sound mind is what tamps down the, the worry that affects our faith. In verse seven, he said, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Here's a peace of God. Is God worried about it? Probably not. He has under, things under control. And then finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there be, if there's any virtue, if there's anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. Now this is called, you could call it directed thinking, where we are thinking about the way we're going to think. And we, we, we pull our thoughts in there intentionally. I need to make sure that my thoughts are going this way. Part of the good fight of faith is asking God, help me to think. Help me to put these things in my mind. We may have to isolate ourselves with God and, and, and open up to this section and remind ourselves, okay, I need to think this way. And then 
Look for places in God's word, look for examples and supporting evidence and, and put this to the test. God's word is full of accounts, full of promises, full of stories to lay to rest the worried mind. But we have to put those things in mind to counter that and to keep hold of our faith. Very important elements, very important elements. One other thing that we can do is that we can help each other fight against worry. We can help each other fight against worry. Malachi says, those who feared the Lord spoke to one another and the Lord heard them. Speaking to one another, the calls, the cards, to people who are going through their trials, sometimes helps them establish their thoughts. When we read those verses about establish your thoughts, sometimes that's really hard by yourself, but somebody else may just say the right thing, point you to the right scripture, whatever it may be, and that helps put other thoughts in mind. In times of trial, we don't always think straight. Sometimes someone else can come in and say just the right thing that helps us think in a different way about what we're going through. And God says our hearts, our, our thoughts will be established. And he can use one, one person to help another to do that. So here's the point about worry. Worrisome experiences can shape our faith. It can push it away. It can dampen it. Or if we have faith, it can shape our approach to how we handle those worrisome experiences. The best time to work on worry is now, before the trials of faith come. Point number two, Matthew chapter eight. Matthew eight. Matthew eight and verse 23. Now, when he got into a boat, his disciples followed him, and suddenly a great tempest arose on the sea, so that the boat was covered with the waves. But he was asleep. Have you ever been on a boat where waves are breaking over the top of it? That, that'd, be, that'd be pretty scary. I mean, when you're on a boat and the waves are coming over the top, that, that's quite the storm. His disciples came to him and woke him saying, Lord, save us, we're, we're, we're perishing, we're going to die. But he said to them, why are you fearful, O you of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was great calm. And the men marveled, saying, who can this be, that even the winds and the sea obey him? Well, who it is is God. That's who it can be, and there's a, there's a lesson here. But the point of of the issue with faith is fear, fear. Now we can read that and say, yeah, I'd be pretty scared as well. So how does this work? How does fear work against faith? Proverbs chapter 29, let's take a look at Proverbs 29 and verse 25. Proverbs 29, 25. The fear of a man brings a snare. 
Now think about that. The fear of a man brings a snare. What is the snare? What does the snare trap? What, 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 what does it do? But go on. But whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. Now this proverb contrasts fear and trust. And trust is simply another word for faith. Because they are related. They're related in, in effect. What reaction does fear create in a human? Well, fear typically causes people to panic, to bolt, to run, or to react in just unthought out ways. In scary situations, it can be hard to remember God is here with me. And to recognize that, I can see the circumstance. Can I see God as well? Fear can quickly tear down trust. And the snare that fear brings on people is that it can trap their faith. It can trap our faith. It can, it can bring captive our faith into captivity. 1 John chapter 4, 1 John 4, again, a set of verses that really deserve a lot more thought and study. 1 John 4, 17, love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. When do you need boldness? Do you need boldness when things are going along pretty good? Uh, you know, you don't think about that until you're facing something that's fearful. That's when boldness becomes challenged. That we may have boldness in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. So this love for God and the love of God is something that God builds in us. It grows in us through his spirit. I don't know if anybody in here would say, I've been made perfect in love. It's, it's, a, it's a lifelong process. We're always growing in that. And fear can, can be a challenge to it. And it relates, it relates to faith. Verse 17 says about boldness, and it says, as he is, so are we. Well, how was he? How was Christ in terms of boldness and love? Well, I think we, we understand very clearly that when he walked this earth, he was not a man of fear because God is not a God of fear. He has everything under control. We are in the hands of a God who fears nothing. That has to be remembered. So are we in this world. Verse 10, 
In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. We don't generate this toward God of, of and by ourselves. We reflect it. We reflect like a mirror the love of God toward us. It's, it's like children who reflect a parent's love back. They've been loved by their parents and they, they reflect that back. Children learn love from their parents and we learn love from God. Now think for a moment about the element of love as it relates to faith. But think about it just in human terms for a moment if you will. Are there people in your life that you know will be there for you? Are there people in your life that you know will be there for you that you can depend on them? You have human faith in them. Well, I would guess that there are people that you can think of that, yeah, they, I, I trust them, they are there for me. Well, those are undoubtedly people that you love and people who love you. There's an element of trust and confidence in our relationships that have a lot of love. Love between human beings. You know that the more you love someone and the more you are loved by them, that affects your faith in that person. It's the same thing with God. We can face circumstances that would strike fear into a normal human being, but the more we love God and the more we know He loves us, the more confidence, the more trust, the more faith we have in Him and the more fear is driven out. It drives it out. But fear does have a torment if we allow it to linger and it erodes faith. Now in the last point, I mentioned the value of, of other people who can help you overcome your worries. In this point, I will mention the danger of other people who feed your fears. The danger of people who feed your fears. Watch out for people in this world who are appointing you all the time to the fearful, the negative. These are faith eroders. Faith eroders. So, where do we go when fear comes into our minds? Well, go to our knees, go to the throne of God, where God is, where Jesus Christ is at His right hand, where we are told to go to find mercy, obtain mercy, and find grace to help in time of need. Fear is real. Fear is real. But there are ways to deal with it. We will be challenged. And at those times of challenge, fear and faith, you know, sort of get into a staring contest in which one is going to blink. Which one will blink? Fear experiences, fearful experiences can shape our faith. They can if we let it meaning they can push our faith away, or faith will shape the way we handle our experiences. Number three, Matthew 14. Matthew 14. Verse 25. Now in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them walking on the sea. 
And as it says earlier, it was a contrary sea. Things were being tossed back and forth. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled and said, it is a ghost. And they cried out for fear. Now you might think, oh, well, this point's leading to fear as well, but it isn't. Uh, it talks about Peter in just a moment, who more often than not was fearless. But going on in verse 27, immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, be of good cheer, it is I, don't be afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. It's like Peter throws out this big thing in his mind. Okay, I'll test you on this. And Jesus saying, okay, come on. It's no big, no big deal to him, come on. He said, come. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said to him, O oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Why did you doubt? Now there, were, there was fear around, but he points out, he doesn't point out the fear, he points out to Peter, doubt. Doubt means wavering, hesitating, standing divided in our thinking. Doubt is a great paralyzer. Doubt freezes people. This worked with fear, but it was more than just fear. Maybe Jesus was harkening back to Peter's first statement. Peter said, if it's you. So there were already ifs playing in Peter's mind. There can be a lot of ifs that go in our thinking when we go through some of these experiences in life. Now, I don't know how Jesus said it. You can imagine different ways. Did he, did he say this to Peter in front of everybody? When you read on, it says, when they got him into the boat, the wind ceased. And those who were in the boat came and worshiped him saying, truly, you are the son of God. Did they hear what he said to Peter? Maybe. Or did he say it just to Peter quietly? I've wondered before if while the others were worshiping and praising, praising Jesus, if Peter sort of slid off into a corner of the boat and was thinking, what just happened? And it doesn't indicate that Jesus chewed him out. We, don't, we simply don't know the tone of voice that he used, but he could have just simply asked a very penetrating little question in a still small voice. He said, why did you doubt? Why did you doubt? I don't think he asked Peter that question expecting an answer. I think he was challenging Peter to just do some self-introspection, to, 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 to go think about this. Answering why takes you a lot deeper than answering what. He didn't say to Peter, well, what just happened? Take a look at this. No, he asked Peter, why? Think about why. Go deep inside your mind. Why deals with motives, with causes. And it makes us ask, why am I this way? He was asking Peter, think about that. Why, why did you doubt? You've been around me, you know me. 
Well, Peter doubted for the same reason everybody doubts. It's sort of ingrained in us, in the, living in this world, in the human thinking process. We live in a world that doubts everything. It's a tool that Satan used in the garden on Adam and Eve. Plant some doubts. Just plant the doubts there and let them fester. He pushed doubt into their mind about God's truthfulness, about God's motives, and it's the world we live in. James chapter 1, it's a world we live in and a world that does and has affected us and it's something that challenges our faith. James 1 and verse 5, he said, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach and it will be given to him. But let, let him ask in faith, no doubting. Faith and doubt don't mix. They, they, they don't mix. It's oil and water. Let him ask in faith with no doubting. Because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. The circumstances control it rather than faith controlling the circumstance. It's just contrary to God's nature. God does not doubt. Now this specifies asking for wisdom, but doesn't it apply to everything that we ask for? Everything we ask of God? Peter's, Peter found himself in a, in a double-minded position there. I'm walking, but I'm scared. I'm walking, but I don't know. And he was, he was doubting and he, he froze. He just froze and it drowned his faith. On the other hand, faith can put you in different positions. It's like in Daniel 3, when uh, the, the, the famous story of, of Daniel, Shadrach, and Abednego, in Daniel 3 and verse 16, when they were about to be thrown into a fiery furnace, and Nebuchadnezzar said, you die if you don't follow me. Now that's a trial. That's a trial of faith. It's a bad circumstance. And they answered, and said to the king, verse 16, Daniel 3, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If that's the case, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. That's one thing they were sure of. And number two, they were sure of this, he will deliver us from your hand. We, we know he can deliver us from the fiery furnace, but we know for sure he'll take us out of your hands. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. That was faith. It wasn't wavering. It wasn't being tossed back and forth. Should I do this? Should I do that? No, it, it, it was, it was, it was uh, just security. Security in their minds based on faith. We won't do that. We won't do that, and we'll let God do what he's going to do. That's not an easy place to get to. But the moment we start justifying and rationalizing and thinking about uh, whether we should obey or not and don't take a stand, faith begins to crumble. You contrast Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego found to what we, we read in 1 Kings 18, 21. I won't turn there, but it's the account where Elijah said to all the people, how long will you falter between two opinions? If God, if the Lord is God, follow him. If he's Baal, follow him. You know what it says next? 
says, but the people answered him, not a word. They were frozen, paralyzed. Doubt was stronger than faith. Let's take a one quick look at another example of someone who was really, they were just brutally honest about themselves and um, their limitations and how he dealt with it. In Mark chapter nine, Mark nine, this is a really great life example of where we can find ourselves. I've, I've been there before, wrestling with, with, with doubt and, and, and belief. And uh, in Mark 9, we see this example in verse 20. They brought him to him. This was a, a child who had a, an evil spirit. They brought him to him and uh, in verse 20, when he saw him, immediately the spirit convulsed him and he fell on the ground and wallowed, foaming at the mouth. Really, really sad situation to see with your child. So he asked the father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And often he has thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said to him, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. The man asked an if question, and Jesus came back with an if question. Which if poses the biggest challenge? Which is the bigger if? If you can do anything, or if you can believe, all things are possible. Well, immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. He knew my unbelief, my doubting is, that's holding me back and I need, I need help with that. You ever found yourself there? This is part of drawing near to God. The man was asking for help. He was asking Christ for help against the enemy. Ask God, ask God to cast out doubts. Experiences that put doubt in our mind will shape our faith. They'll shape it in a wrong direction. Or our faith can shape our approach to controlling those doubts. Finally, the last one, Matthew chapter 16. Matthew 16. Verse 5. This is the last place in Matthew where it uses the phrase, O you of little faith. Matthew 16, verse 5. When his disciples had come to the other side, they had forgotten to take bread. Then Jesus said to them, take, take heed and beware the leaven of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees. And they reasoned among themselves saying, it's because we have taken no bread. Got to watch out for their bread. When Jesus perceived it, he said to them, Oh, you of little faith, why do you reason among yourselves because you have brought no bread? Do you not understand yet or remember the five loaves of, of the 5,000 and how many baskets you took up, nor the seven loaves of the 4,000 and how many large baskets you took up? How is it you don't understand that I did not speak to you concerning bread, but you should be aware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees? 
Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the doctrine of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Why did you reason among yourselves? O oh, you of little faith, human reasoning is the fourth great enemy. Their reasoning was shallow, and therefore their comprehension and their understanding was shallow. Why was their reasoning shallow? Because they immediately put things in the context of what humans do instead of what God does. This is where humans tend to go first. What can humans do? He pointed them to miracles. You've seen miracles. Be thinking about the deeper things. You've seen and experienced these things, but you've forgotten. The miracles of life should help us think differently. Faith, again, is a spiritual quality. And as such, it demands that we lift our thinking above what we see, about the things that humans reason about, human reasoning. We have to consider, first of all, what does God do? How does God do things? How does he think? How does he live? Human reasoning considers first what humans do, what humans can see, touch, smell, taste, hear. Human reasoning depends on the senses, on what we see around us. Human reasoning makes for shallow understanding. It doesn't think about the deeper things. Faith is the evidence of things not seen. We're not looking at explaining all of life on human circumstance or through human deduction. God thinking, God reasoning is based on a different set of abilities, possibilities. Everything changes with God, but human reasoning finds it hard to understand and believe. And he linked human reasoning to little faith, very interestingly. Human reasoning would not have allowed Abraham or Noah to make the decisions that they made, to take the steps on faith that they took. Human reasoning would not have allowed Joshua to stand up in front of everybody and say, okay, here's God's plan. We're going to walk around the city and then we're going to yell real loud and the walls are going to fall down. That, that made no human sense. Human reasoning would not have allowed Gideon to see his army reduced from 300 or 30,000 down to 300 and go out and fight. And the Bible is full of these things, full of examples. The list goes on, but there's one big lesson. God doesn't reason the way we do. God doesn't think the way we do. He doesn't do things the way we would do them. But his way always has a greater purpose and it always works out. Many people have faltered because they reasoned God right out of their, out of their lives. They've reasoned God out of their lives. We see it so commonly today. Well, if God was a God of love, he wouldn't allow all this suffering. Therefore, Either God doesn't exist or he's not a God of love and we won't follow him. And it's very shallow. That's a very shallow way of looking at life. But human reasoning is very shallow. Human reasoning equals little faith. So there are experiences, yes, there are experiences we can get into that if we try to reason through them humanly, it's going to shape our faith. 
It's going to whittle it down to nothing. But on the other hand, our faith can shape our approach to dealing with our experiences due to thinking in a godly way. Faith is confident. Just like back in 1975, we did have this much going for us. We realized I may not understand everything right now today, but someday I will. Because I have faith that God's reasoning has, has structure to it, it has sense to it. And there's something going on that I may not understand now, but I will. Well, brethren, these are just a few thoughts, just tip the iceberg, but I hope it gives you something to think about, and to ponder and, and study. Uh, we all have enemies of, of our faith, but they're, they're pretty much in common. The circumstances we go through are pretty common. The reactions are pretty common. And all of these things that are just mentioned, they're pretty good buddies. You know, they travel together in a pack and uh, they, they like to feed off each other. If one gets in the mine, he'll open the door for the rest of them to come on in too. Now, that's the way it works. Uh, they, they work well together and they pile on one another. Worry can lead to fear, fear can lead to doubt, doubt can lead to human reasoning, or the other way around. If we, if we let human reasoning in, that can lead to worry, that can lead to doubt, that can lead to fear. They all work well together. So it's very important, it's very important to realize that the greatest enemies of faith are not those things that are out there around us. They're the enemies that can lurk within, that affect the way we deal with the things that happen around us. When the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth, Jesus said. Other parts of the Bible tell us that he will with some, and he may not with others. The determining factor is how we establish our hearts in faith. It's very, very important. I would urge all of us to make this part of our lives. Be intentional about establishing the faith in our hearts before the trials come. Don't wait for trials to come. Simply know they will come. Anticipate the possibilities. Don't worry about them, but do prepare for them. A very good way is sometimes when you see other people going through their trials, give thought to it, not only just praying about them and helping them, but spend time thinking about, okay, what would I do if that was me? What would I think? What should I think? How would I hope to go through that in the right way? Make prayer, make faith rather a regular part of our prayer. Lord, help my unbelief. Help me in these areas to shore up. Make faith a regular focus of our study. Our study in the Bible, our study of life, our study of other people's lives. Think about faith. And make faith a regular part of our conversation with friends. Paul wrote to Timothy, he said, flee also youthful lust, but pursue. And at the end he says, pursue this with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. What are we to pursue with other people? Pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Pursue these, he said, with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. In other words, making this part of the, the bond that we have in our conversation and in our, 
are talking with others, encouraging one another, helping one another. These are ways that we can establish our hearts before these issues in life occur, as they will from time to time. And if we do, we can safely anticipate that our faith will shape our experiences and our experiences won't shape our faith.